Okay, so please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, and uh, we are going through a very interesting book. This book covers a period of about 30 years, and this is going to cover a pretty major transition from law to grace, from the old covenant into the new covenant. And most of Acts of the Apostles is going to be taught by myself from an historical perspective. So just a quick recap as to where we are so far, so far before we conclude in chapter 4. At chapter 1, verse 4, the Lord Jesus Christ said that the promise of the Father was going to be the Holy Ghost. In chapter 2, 39 to 40, so on and so forth, the promise of the Father is offered to believing Israel, but they have to personally appropriate that, which means they have to personally receive it. There's no automatic salvation. You have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. In chapter 1, verse 2, you've got a picture of the rapture, and also from chapter 1, uh, verses 10 and 11, the apostles not only saw the Lord go up into heaven, but the apostles are going to return with him in the rapture. Please see First Thessalonians 4.14. Chapter 113 and verse 14, Judas, Jude, Judah, was the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ and a full brother of James, who was the writer of the epistle of James, which shows me that the Lord had at least one sibling, half-brother, of course, who was one of his apostles. And uh, some people think that Thaddeus is another name for Judas or Jude or Judah. I'm not sure. But uh, Dr. Luke mentions Judah, Jude, Judas. Three names, of course, but the same person in the Gospel of Luke and also actually the apostles. Also of interest to me from chapter 1, verse 14, we discover that the Lord's brethren, his half-brothers and sisters, are now with Mary in the upper room, which gives the impression that they were saved. But pre this time, we know from John chapter 7, they were in unbelief. So it's possible that his half-brothers and sisters were teenagers by the stage of Acts chapter 1, hence why they were unable to look after themselves and Mary. And that's probably why John was given the responsibility to look after Mary and her children. Although that's just speculation on my part. We can't be dogmatic about that. But uh, with the brethren being listed in Acts one fourteen, you have to assume that they're not old enough to look after themselves, so on and so forth. What was very interesting to me, we got to chapter 3, verse 25, and I'll read it one more time. The word of God says, Unto you first, God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. Unlimited atonement, you can't miss it. The Lord has offered unlimited atonement to Israel, and that would include all of Israel, even Annas and Caiaphas, and I mentioned those individuals last time. I think Annas was Caiaphas's father-in-law, or if you want Caiaphas, was Annas's son-in-law, but it's a family affair. But we know from scripture that the Jews, for the most part, didn't receive the Lord Jesus Christ. But he still offered them salvation. And that's why it says, unto you first, God, in reference to Israel, having raised up his son, Jesus, sent him to bless you, all of Israel, in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. So it's there on the table, if you want it, and we'll get to Acts chapter 11, some studies on, and you'll see that salvation has been offered to the Gentiles as well. But as always, you have to personally appropriate it in order to be saved. And last time, from chapter 4, verse 3, we discovered that Peter and John were detained all night. They were held all night in jail, in some kind of a detention center, for preaching the gospel. Which goes back to what I said last time, how it's going to cost you something, and me something, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But uh, as far as today's service goes, please pick up your Bibles and let's go from Acts chapter 4, verse 21. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go. 
finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men glorified God for that which was done. They threatened them in reference to Peter and John, but they had to let them go because they feared the people. And on top of that, all men glorified God for that which was done. It's very interesting when you go back to the Gospels, it says how the common people heard the Lord Jesus Christ very gladly. And yet, unfortunately, it was the religious leaders. It was organized religion, which had a great problem with him. They saw him as a great threat. And on top of that, he wasn't reared. He wasn't schooled. He wasn't educated in Jerusalem High. He didn't go to Eton or Harrow or Oxford or Cambridge or Yale or Harvard, and yes, I'm being slightly facetious, but they were very critical of this traveling carpenter. And on top of that, they knew him. They knew his mother, and they knew his stepfather. And yet they were told that the Messiah would come from among them. And I showed you that from chapter 3, uh, verse 22 and 23. And yet they rejected him, as their fathers had rejected the Old Testament prophets, which shows a clear picture of the Jews, for the most part, rejecting God the Father, and as we go into the New Covenant, you find the Jews rejecting God the Son. It's tragic. But they've been held all night, Peter and John. They've been threatened. And yet, that doesn't seem to stop them. In fact, quite the opposite. It gives them a greater sense to push on. And I find that when Christians are really persecuted, when they're really up against it, they do greater things for the Lord. But the worst thing you want to do is come across an apathetic, backslidden, uh, indifferent Christian. That sort of person that... The Lord doesn't use, and that's the sort of person that will just pull you down. Look at verse 22, please. For the man was above 40 years old, on whom this miracle of healing was showed. I love the way that Dr. Luke says, above 40 years of old. And also from chapter 1, going to chapter 2, around 3,000 believed. And chapter 4, about 5,000 believed. He doesn't uh, come down dogmatically, but it says here the man was about 40 years of age. And of course, this man had been outside the temple probably for several years. And the priests had no doubt walked over him in order to get into the temple, which goes back to the Good Samaritan account that the Lord spoke about back in the Gospel of Luke, I think it is. And they knew that this man had been healed. They'd seen him outside the gates, outside the temple for many years, this cripple. And yet they couldn't heal him. The Gentiles couldn't heal him, but it took two commercial fishermen to heal him through the power, through the anointing of the Holy Ghost, of course. Verse 23, And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. They went to their own company, they went to their homes, there's no commune here. And again, they're going to report what the chief priests and elders have said unto them and done unto them. Organized religion, once again, clearly found to be at enmity with the Lord. As I say, they put the, the Lord on the cross, they conspired with the Gentiles to do so, and they put their prophets to death many times back in the old testament in fact if you go back to the old testament only a few jews recognized their prophets and kings and only a few jews recognized their messiah and his apostles it's always been the minority that have seen the truth have received the truth from the lord but the majority have always been in the wrong that's why it says in matthew 7 how the road to hell is wide it's broad and many there be which go in there at but the gate the entrance the path the Way to heaven, salvation is narrow, and few there be which find the way. Look at 24, please. When they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord, and said, Lord, thou art God, which hast made heaven and earth and the sea, and all that is in them, who by the mouth of thy servant David hast said, 
Why did the heathen rage, and the people imagine vain things? They lifted up their voice with one accord, and said, Lord, thou art God, which hast made heaven and earth, no evolution there, and the sea, and all that in them is, without exception, who by the mouth of thy servant David, this is the sixth Old Testament quote, has said, Why did the heathen rage, and the people imagine vain things? This is a very interesting piece of scripture, and if I get to this piece of scripture from Psalm 2, I like the way that they are praying as a group, there's a corporate prayer here, you don't find Pope Peter putting his triple tiara on, or Mary the Queen of Heaven, having people pray to her, or looking to her for advice, and yes, it's quite possible that the 70 are present here, and it's quite possible that Mary is present along with her children, but the focus is really on the 12 apostles. But what really fascinates me here, apart from the fact that they are praying as a group, and a fact on the part that evolution has been completely ruled out, is this quote from Psalm chapter 2. In fact, please turn to Psalm chapter 2. And uh, King David wrote the Psalms a thousand years before the Lord Jesus Christ was born. And Psalm 2 verse 1, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Who is David speaking about? He's speaking prophetically about the leaders that came against the Lord Jesus Christ. Now David is a Jew, so when he says the heathen, he's referring to the Gentiles. And I'll come back to that in a moment. Look at verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast their cords away from us. The kings of the earth, probably Pilate and Herod, set themselves and the rulers take counsel together, probably in reference to the Sanhedrin and the Jewish elite, against the Lord, L-O-R-D, uppercase, in reference to God the Father, and against his anointed, his Christ, his Christos, being Jesus, of course, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cut away their cords from us. On the wrong side of history, if ever I saw it, but he goes and say in verse 4, he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall have them in derision. Just pitch that for a moment, the Lord is in heaven, looking down on the sons of men, looking down on the Jewish leaders and the Gentiles called heathen in verse 1. On top of that, that term heathen, which I'll get to back in Acts 4 in a moment, is also in reference to unbelieving Israelites, or the unbelieving Israelites, I should say. He's laughing at them, he's having, he's having them in derision, he's almost mocking them. And it goes on saying in verse 5, Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath, and vex them in his sore displeasure. Probably in reference to the great white throne in judgment. Look at 6, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Yet have I set my king, king of the Jews, the Lord Jesus Christ, upon my holy hill of Zion. Jerusalem, you can't miss it. I would declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Probably in reference to the incarnation, but I love this, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And yet Islam says, if you confess Christ as the son of God, you are accursed. And yet my Bible says, if you don't confess Christ as the son of God, you are already accursed. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Ask of me, he says to the son, and I shall give thee the heathen, the church for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. A hundred AD, there are no Gentile believers, there are no Christians, there aren't any individuals anywhere in the world believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, but a hundred AD, there are many. So a hundred BC, I should say, there are no believers in the Lord Jesus Christ anywhere in the world, but around a hundred AD, after Christ, there are thousands if not maybe a million plus believing in the Lord Jesus Christ so he says ask of me and not only will I give you the heathen for your inheritance 
but I'm going to give you the uttermost parts of the earth as well. That's powerful stuff. And this is written a thousand years before Christ was born. Look at verse 9, please. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Second advent, not yet upon us, hasn't yet occurred. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Kings, probably in reference to, it will start, I would imagine, with people like Herod the Great. And there are three Herods in the New Testament. All evil men, of course. And, and we know through history that many kings and queens have Profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but I would imagine David is still speaking primarily about the kings of Israel going into new covenants and going to the church age. Look at verse 11, please. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Lord uppercase still, probably around this time it's in reference to the triune God. You can fear the Lord with fear. What does it say? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but the fear of man bringeth a snare. So be careful that you don't get the wrong fear. Rejoice with trembling. On top of that, you were told to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Look at verse 12, please. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and he perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. You got saved by believing on him. And here, this is a prophecy of those that are going to trust in him. They're going to be blessed. They're going to be happy. And on top of that, they're going to be saved. But that term, kiss the son, very much in reference to submission. And Islam says that Allah had no son, and that's fine by me. Allah had no son because Allah is not Jehovah. But here you found a very clear prophecy written a thousand years BC before Christ in reference to the Messiah. Please go back to Acts chapter 4. And let's look at this, this piece of scripture one more time, please. Uh, from verse 25. Who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage? And the people imagine vain things. Now David's going to speak prophetically here about the Jewish leaders and the Gentiles that are going to reject the Messiah around Messina. He was born 4 BC, he's crucified 30 AD. So in that time frame, it goes and say in verse 26, the kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. The kings of the earth has to be Pilate. It has to be Herod the Great and uh, Archelaus, his son that came after him and uh, goes on to say, how the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. The rulers have to be the Jewish leaders, as I say, the Sanhedrin, Caiaphas, Annas and his sons. And yet we find from the word of God how at least two priests are saved, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. But it's really quite tragic because it says they were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. They're plotting against the Lord of the universe. Just picture that for a moment, please. These are Jewish leaders. These are scholars. This would be the group which were the custodians of scripture. And probably the Levites are here as well. And yet they've totally missed the Messiah. Their forefathers missed, for the most part, the prophets that went before them. And now they're going to miss the Messiah, the Son of God. And they're going to be cast into outer darkness. And that's why it says in verse 27, For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles. And the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. Middle knowledge, the Lord looks down from eternity past into eternity future. And as he does so, he picks a handful of Old Testament prophets and he reveals to the prophets what's going to occur. And also from this piece of scripture, uh, it speaks about thy holy child, Jesus. And I was reading this last night and also this morning in anticipation for recording it. And I can't quite understand why Dr. Luke is referring to thy holy child, Jesus. 
the Lord Jesus Christ is no longer a baby. I know every Christmas they get the manger out and they come to worship the baby Jesus. And I'm not overly mad about that, but I'm happy to use Christmas as, a, as an opportunity to witness to people about the true meaning of the season. But for the truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, that's true, he became the Christos through the Lord's anointing, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles. Of course, Herod was a half-Jew, half-Gentile. Pontius Pilate was a superstitious Roman, along with the Gentiles. There's probably other Gentiles present, which are not uh, cited explicitly in Scripture. Probably the secret police, I would imagine. And the people of Israel, that's treachery, were gathered together for to do what's over thy hand, and thy counsel determined before to be done. So like I say, middle knowledge is very much in play here, the Lord looks down and he reveals to the prophets what's going to occur. And based on how man responds to any given situation, that is what the prophets see and write down. It's also uh, worthy to show you or cite to, you haven't got time this morning, from Revelation 19, how the Lord puts it uh, on the hearts of the sons of men to do whatever he wants to do. In other words, he will harden your hearts. He will raise you up to destroy you if he chooses to, because he is the Lord of the universe and this is his world. But for the most part, he'll only destroy those that are against him and have always been against him and were never going to come to him. On top of that, he can take unbelieving Israel and he can turn their rejection of his son into a great blessing. And you get that from Genesis chapter 50, where it speaks about uh, Joseph saying to his brothers, you meant it for evil in reference to betraying him, uh, forsakening him, but God meant it for good. And I don't know how the Lord works it out. I don't understand how these things work. But I was told to believe that the Lord is sovereign. And at the same time, man has free will. And how the Lord marries those two up, I don't know. It's like the triunity of God. You weren't told to understand it. But you were certainly told to believe it. And also from 28, one more time. The leaders of Israel and the Gentiles are on the wrong side of history. Which goes back to my earlier comments. How the most, how most of the people, the majority of people that have ever lived or are ever going to live are never going to be saved. And you can preach to these people until you're blue in the face. Unless their hearts are right, unless they are receptive to the gospel, you're wasting your time. I mean, look at the Lord Jesus Christ he comes up from the tomb and he appears to over 500 brethren at once and there's not one unsaved person present. And people say, why didn't he appear to Pilate or Herod, so on and so forth? Well, why cast your pearls before swine? I mean, a great miracle has just taken place here under the noses of the believing Jews on the first hand, on the one hand, and the unbelieving Israelites on the other hand, and yet the religious leaders don't believe it, they don't receive it. They're not interested, their hearts are not right with the Lord. So why do further miracles? Why reveal yourself to individuals and cause them to become even more accountable at the great white throne judgment? Look at verse 29, please. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word, by stretching forth thine hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. That term again, thy holy child, Jesus. And I believe the new Bibles have changed that. They've removed that term, holy child, to your son. But again, Dr. Luke uses that term, thy holy child, Jesus, in a way I don't quite understand. And yes, we know that Luke was a medical physician. And Luke was probably one of the 70. And Luke would have known Mary from the beginning. And yet he's the only writer that uses this expression. But on top of that... They're praying for boldness. They will speak the word of God with truth, so on and so forth. They're not praying for a second blessing, which the charismatics teach. Not play, they're not praying for the ability to speak in tongues again. In fact, you only found tongues once in chapter 2 in reference to the apostles. 
So it's very interesting when you hear some of these charismatics speaking about tongues, so on and so forth. For the most part, we only find one group of people speaking in tongues, and that, of course, was in reference to the 12 apostles, which are all Jewish men. But here, fearful Christians are praying for boldness, and they're praying for boldness via the name of thy holy child, Jesus. And they're praying as a group. Pope Peter isn't here praying from the seat of Peter, the chair of Peter, from the Holy See, so-called. They're praying as a group. There's no leader here as such. That's why you were told to study. That's why you were told to examine the scriptures. That's why you were told to not take the words or word of individuals. You were told to study, to show yourself approved unto God. Because many false prophets, many antichrists have gone out into the world. But look at verse 31, please. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And they spake the word of God with boldness. I love that. They spake the word of God with boldness. We need that today so desperately. But again, they're praying as a group. And the place was shaken where they were assembled together. It's probably the upper room again, I would imagine. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. Now, this is really what you would call a second blessing. I don't really use that term. But if you want a second blessing, if you want to find the term second blessing found in the word of God, this is where you're going to find it. And it's in reference to speaking the word of God with boldness. Not speaking with tongues, not praying for visions and prophecies, so on and so forth, but to preach the word of God with boldness. And I can't stress that enough. We really need that for today. The church, for the most part, is impotent. The church, for the most part, is worthless. And that's why I think very few Christians are going to arrive at the judgment seat of Christ and receive five crowns. Those crowns are available, but you need to put yourself out to get them. Look at 32, please. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that ought of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And the multitude of them that believed, faith alone, were of one heart and of one soul. This is great unity. This would be a unique glimpse into the early church when it shows us very clearly how they were in one place, with one heart and of one soul. And they pray for boldness. And it goes on to say, neither said any of them that ought of the things which he possessed was his own. But they had all things common. They're now going to pool their resources because there was no doubt a great picture of poverty going on here. Some of these people had come from different parts of the Roman Empire uh, to be saved. And of course, the focus is going to zoom in on the 12 apostles taking the lead, of course. But you've got 3,000 from Pentecost, Acts 2. You've got 5,000 from chapter 4 believing. So 7,000 souls are being saved. You've got the 12 apostles pretty much in the leading seats, and I'll show you that from chapter 5 next time. We've got the 70, no doubt, being used to support the apostles and probably Mary and the brethren are there somehow, but the Holy Spirit doesn't tell you that the 70 are supporting the apostles, and the Holy Spirit doesn't tell you that Mary and her children are in the background somewhere. So I'm, I'm speculating, but I'm happy to speculate because I think it's quite probable that such good people are involved behind the scenes, but they're going to pull their resources, they're going to have all things in common, because they have a great love for the Lord and his people. Look at verse 33, please. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Great power, great grace. Underline that in your Bibles, please. We need great power today, and we need great grace today to be bold witnesses of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. I remember some years ago listening to an unbelieving Jew speaking about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he made a very good point. He said, why are so few Christians preaching 
about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't preach enough about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what saves us. Our faith in the death, burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We so need that today. We really do. 34. Neither was there any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the lands or the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. At the apostles' feet is submission. They're in the lead. And again, this is voluntary. This isn't mandatory. They wanted to do this because they loved their brethren. And this goes back to what the Lord told us to pick up your cross each and every day and follow him and deny yourself and put others first. It's very difficult to do. And yet for this early church, it wasn't a problem whatsoever. 36. And Joseus, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas was surnamed by the apostles, not by Pope Peter, and yet the Catholic Church today will take it upon themselves to allow the Pope to name a cardinal, or call a cardinal, or select a cardinal, so on and so forth. But here the apostles, as a group, have chosen Joseus, surnamed Barnabas, who was a Levite, from Cyprus, and he's going to be very much Paul's preaching partner as we go through the book of Acts. And he's a wealthy Levite, and he has land, he sells it, and brings the money and lays it at the apostles' feet. Voluntary. This is not mandatory. This was done, as I say, because they loved the Lord. They loved the early church. They wanted to make themselves available to the early church. And Barnabas, as I say, did this voluntarily. He's also a Levite, which shows that the Lord is now saving priests, although a small number, to be saved. And we find in Acts chapter 6 how many priests are now believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, but far and few between. For the most part, organized religion didn't believe on him, they rejected him. So 37 verses will conclude Acts chapter 4. I guess denial, servitude, praying for boldness, praying for courage, faith alone, uh, standing against unbelieving apostate Israel. In fact, unbelieving apostate Israel are referred to as being heathen. Gentiles, unclean animals even. And on top of that, such a group of people were tragically on the wrong side of history. But as you conclude this piece of scripture with me, you see very clearly how they've sold their resources, they've pulled their resources, and they're going to give what they have to the apostles. And we'll pick it up in chapter 5, what happens when a couple of saved individuals decide to keep back some of their money, some of their property. But we'll conclude there in verse 37 from Acts chapter 4. Next time we'll pick it up in Acts chapter 5.